The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Welcome everyone, thank you so much for joining us this evening. My name is Emma Faye and I'm the CEO of Guildhouse. And this evening I join you from the Guildhouse office in the Lion Arts Precinct in Adelaide's West End on Ghana Country. These conversations are aimed at increasing connectivity during this ever-evolving time of disconnect and shifting sands to offer an opportunity for artists to increase their well-being, to find new models of sustainability for their practice. Tonight and tomorrow you'll hear from speakers investigating the role of critical voice within arts practice. We've got conversations with writers, editors and artists to unpack the need for and impact of critical engagement and rigour through arts writing and peer conversations. So I am incredibly pleased to introduce our panel session titled The Role of Critical Engagement. Our chair tonight is Dr Lisa Slade, who is the Assistant Director at the Art Gallery of South Australia, um, Assistant Director of Artistic Programs. And of course, Lisa is also the Chair of ArtLink Magazine. And our panellists, are Mimi Chu, a writer based in London and assistant editor at Freeze Magazine, and Sina Najafi, curator and the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Cabinet. This is such a wonderful opportunity to hear about these, uh, these three incredibly talented and dedicated contributors to international critical dialogue about the artists and culture of our time. So Lisa, I'd like to express my thanks to you for leading this session and hand over to you now. Thank you so much, Emma. We are meeting on Ghana country, as Emma just mentioned, and Sina and Mimi, it's lovely to have you with us here. Ghana Miana Yatanga Yuandi. So we are, of course, on Ghana land. Now, it's great to be presenting or talking with you on what is probably the busiest week in the year in Adelaide. This is in many ways a kind of informal Writers' Week event. We have happening right now in Adelaide uh, a Writers' Week, which is part of the Adelaide Festival. And I love the way the expanded field of discourse means that Guildhouse is championing and staging events like this that bring Adelaide audiences and audiences further afield into dialogue with two of the world's most significant editors. We are travelling to London tonight and we are travelling to Brooklyn tonight. So we'll have an opportunity to hear more about critical writing, its importance right now, but also to hear about the loves of the, the discipline that we hold so close. In preparing, I was just talking to Emma about Guildhouse and, and the, the quorum that are the Guildhouse members. Now, Guildhouse founded on the idea of the Guild on a kind of artisanal principle. And I'm really interested to explore, and perhaps those of you listening will have questions, to explore the role of writing and the role of critical writing, art historical writing as well, in a sense, the writing of new art histories, the writing of new art criticisms for your practice, your practice as artists. So we're going to kick off. I'm going to throw to Mimi in the first instance. And what I'd love both Mimi and Sina to do is just to talk about what they do, to talk about what their, their critical practice is, and then we'll start to kind of unpack that. 
So over to you, Mimi Chu. I'm honestly so honoured to be here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I guess I'll just start by introducing myself. Um, I studied art history at university, so you could say I've had a pretty um, traditional art education. Um, I was taught that the critic acted as this kind of expert and that academia was the prime medium for not just analysing a work or movement, but also exposing the world's underlying problems. Um, but recently, I've been noticing a quite a widespread scepticism towards these kinds of art historical structures and hierarchies. I think we're all beginning to realise that no one person can, um, no one critic can preside over an entire cultural landscape. So as an editor now, um, commissioning reviews from the UK and the whole of Australasia, as well as occasional online articles, I'm constantly reminded of my own limited perspective um, like no one person can keep up with everything that's going on it just isn't possible so I think it's really important that you have um, communities and allies so um, just to kind of run through three pieces that I've been working on recently um, I'm going to start with um, an article that really um, reflects this culture of exchange and decentralization we've been seeing especially in this past year as communities thrive and expand online. Um, so the piece is by Roshan Taponi, and it's looking at how um, Arab art communities are using the internet to cross borders. Speaking from her own um, diasporic position as a UK-based um, Irish Iraqi, um, Roshan walks us through various platforms, um, not just recent ones, but also from the past couple of decades, that are enabling people to reconnect with the vernacular and start to kind of come, come away to overcoming conditions of dislocation and displacement. I don't have time to go into all of the platforms that she goes into right now, um, but just to highlight a few, um, one of them is called I-O-T-A-W-I-P, which stands for Internet of Things, Another World is Possible. Um, I'd encourage you to look them up. They're, they're an exhibition project from the Amman-based project space, Dara Al-Funan, that is um, unfolding through online residencies and live streams. Another platform that she looked at was Lifter Volumes, which is a digital and print publication that's virtually connecting contributors from Palestine and its diasporas and taking form in, in the form of panels, podcasts, film screenings and essays. And last but not least, Habibi Collective, which is a digital archive and curatorial platform for women's filmmaking from Southwest Asia and North Africa, which Rosian herself founded. And it's also recently evolved into an independent streaming service called Shasha, which launched just a couple of days ago. So for me, this was a great example of critical writing, um, because not only was she navigating quite a broad cultural landscape and a lot, a plethora of artists without kind of claiming to be an expert about any of them. But she also highlighted some of the complications of this landscape, what gets in the way of these virtual connections, from racist algorithms, data privacy violations and censorship, to the, commodifi to the commodifi commodification of marginalised communities at the hands of sensationalist media brands who are claiming false allyship. I think we're in a moment where the language of social justice is being quite widely used and sometimes it can just read like a marketing slogan without that much substance underneath 
So any criticism that can both inspire the artist or reader, but also reveal some of the paradoxes of our current moment is really wonderful to me. And then the next piece that I'm going to talk about is by Freeze's wonderful contributing editor, Rihanna Jade Parker, looking at a documentary called The People's Account from the 1980s. So this was a this investigation was both historical, but it was also very contemporary. Um, you might have seen in the news, those of you in the UK, um, in June of last year, a man, Millard Scott, was tasered in his home by the police in North London as they were trying to arrest his son. Scott was a member of the Broadwater Farm Defence Campaign, which um, set out to examine issues in North London um, surrounding the daily abuse of black people's civil rights and the, the community police relationship. This is exactly what the documentary also sets out to do. Uh, made in 1985 by the Sedo Film and Video Workshop, the People's Account takes a close look at the Broadwater Farm Uprising, which took place on a housing estate in Tottenham in 1985, sparked by an act of police lawlessness against a black woman, in this case Cynthia Jarrett, the mother of Floyd Jarrett, who'd been arrested for hours earlier for driving a car with an out-of-date tax desk. Millard Scott is interviewed in the documentary, where he says that the insurgency that happened wasn't just a riot, it was a civil war. Evidently, that war is continuing into the present day. And this connection between past and present is real. I know that it was acutely felt by Rihanna on writing this piece. But she wasn't just highlighting these depressing realities. She was also platforming some fantastic work by artists past and present. Aside from the video workshop, the article was also looking at the work of forensic architecture, who are similarly using first-person accounts and oral histories to ask exactly what's happening or what happened in the context of state violence in Britain. Forensic architecture's 3D um, investigation in, into the events surrounding the police killing of Mark Duggan that sparked the London riots in 2011, was to be featured in an exhibition shortly after the article by Tottenham Wrights at London's Institute of Contemporary Art. Forensic architecture's findings were key in the rectifying the verdict and the financial settlement of the Duggan family claims um, against the Metropolitan Police. So for me, this kind of connecting the dots is a really key component of critical writing today. And before I run out of time, I just want to go through one review that really stood out to me recently. And that's um, by Emily Verla Bovino of Indie Art Toys in Hong Kong. The show was by this artist duo called Don't Cry in the Morning. Um, and the piece, though short, really opened my eyes, not just to this growing market for designer toys in Hong Kong, but also this idea that the art toys represent a culture, not just a trend. Um, the show took place out, um, in an old industrial complex um, in Hong Kong from when the the region was a centre of toy manufacturing before factories moved to the mainland. Incidentally, also before um, Hong Kong was handed over from the British to the Chinese. So I guess the show was riffing on this historical junction or throwing it back in a way. Having worked with Emily on this piece, I can't look at the art toys now without seeing them as the symptom of some post-colonial identity crisis. It's almost like they're ventriloquizing this dual nationality in which Hong Kong is stuck between Britain and China, but also doing it in a playful way that's also humorous. So I'm going to stop there just to kind of 
hand over to Sina and then open it up to a discussion. Thank you so much, Mimi. We will come back to talking about some of the things you've, you've touched on. And one is the, the good work and the hard work and the important work that writing has to do for social and political ends. But I'm also, and I want to hang on to this concept and revisit it with Sina, is the idea of these multiple platforms. The way that you spoke about the intersections between artist-led projects, exhibition making, critical writing, site specificity, activism, such kind of fluid forms and fluid discussions and I want to come back to that too. Thank you very, very much. Sina, I'd love to hand over to you and don't feel compelled to speak for the full seven minutes. We've given ourselves, this is for the audience now, Sina has given us the seven-minute challenge. So we've got this beautiful structure to work within and as you admitted before we met everybody else you're very good at setting up structures that you don't necessarily uh, stick to so over to you sir thank you very much for inviting me here to this event i'll try and keep it to seven minutes um what are rules for if they're not meant to be broken just very quickly because um i you know Cabinet is a lot less famous than Freeze, and perhaps I should tell you a little bit about the various things that we do. Um, we are an unusual arts publication. I'm not even sure if we're an arts publication. The magazine says art and culture on the front, and that is in part because uh, for print magazines in the United States, you have to put it in some part of the bookstore in places that have a lot of different kinds of magazines. There is no cultural section typically in American, you know, a Barnes and Noble and places like this. There is no such thing as culture. There is a thing for arts magazines. And without calling it art and culture, the placement of the magazine would be very troublesome for most people who are getting it in bookstores. I would say we're more a cultural magazine, an arts magazine. We have been doing since the very beginning. We're a quarterly magazine in print, about to publish our very last print issue and go online. And the question of community, if you like, is going to be more complicated once we go fully online, of course. Um, and I think something we should discuss, what community means for freeze, for a cabinet, for any writer in some sense, and then for readers too. You know, what sort of community do they imagine themselves to be part of when they read, a, when they read something? So the magazine has, from the very beginning, been half given to a theme, and then the other half is uh, unthemed as a column section and a section called Maine, which is unthemed. The current issue has a section on dreams and it's sort of a, it's not an anti-Freudian issue. I'm very Freudian myself, but uh, it's an unFreudian issue in the sense that it looks at dream cultures where the sharing of dreams has been an important part of how one goes about dreaming. So these are cultures that have protocols for how to think of dreams, not as private resources for understanding yourself, but as communal resources for acting and behaving in the world at large. Um, and it's guest edited by, um, by somebody who's a writer for the magazine called Matthew Spellberg. And we're working on an issue on the end, the idea of the ending, um, and that will be the very last print issue. And we didn't pick the topic because it was the last print issue. We had the topic, and then we thought that might be a nice place to end in some sense that with a print issue. Uh, in addition to the magazine, we have an online-only platform we've had for a while called Kiosk. And I'll just tell you a couple of pieces that we're editing right now on that, so, uh, for that platform um, to give you a sense of the range of stuff. We have a piece by um, a Dartmouth uh, professor, Yulia Komska, coming up, which is about these um, very popular high-wire acts that were happening in Germany right after World War II. And the 
pictures are spectacular because you have the rubble of you know Frankfurt or Berlin, and then you have these extraordinary high wire acts that are happening between spires that have survived, and it's very popular. And um, the most famous star of these was a was a woman called Camilla Meyer, who actually there were many Camilla Meyers performing under that, that name. So that's sort of a piece I'm editing now. And then piece after that, it's going to be a piece by um, Becca Rothfeld on Eric Romer and the guilty pleasures of Eric Romer's films, especially the Six Moral Tales. We also curate exhibitions and we have a series of books we've always done. And the book I'm editing now uh, is the first book of a series we're doing with forensic architecture, actually, about the killing of Mark Duggan. So we're, um, I'm deep in the history of Broadwater Farms myself uh, at the moment, and we've just had a, um, a roundtable for the book around the long history of policing in the UK that we're going to publish as part of the book. And the other two books um, that I'm working on right now, one is a book on philosophy and tickling, and it's going to be part of our um, series on paraphilosophy, which are these topics that we think are too minor in some sense to have been the subject of major philosophical investigation. But tickling turns out to be a very important philosophical topic. From Aristotle to Derrida, people were interested in what tickling shows you about your sense of the other and yourself. And so far as you can't tickle yourself, you would think it's just a purely physical sensation. Uh, but it's impossible to tickle yourself. So the question of why you can be tickled by others but not by yourself is a question that shows up in philosophy, you know, here and there throughout. So that's another book that we're editing. And the third book is um, the first book in a series that we're doing on art and law, where we take a particular court case that has happened. We publish the primary documents, and then we have a reading of the court case. And the court case we're looking at is a very interesting one in New York, uh, from the 90s, actually, which tried to think about the relationship between the First Amendment, uh, freedom of speech rights in the United States, which is typically protected speech, written or oral words, but not art. Uh, so the question of is art a form of speech or not is what comes up in that particular court case. And it's had many ramifications. The particular instance of why that um, court case happened is that for a long time on the streets of New York City, if you want to sell a book, any book, your own book, but also other people's books, you don't have to have a permit to sell the book. You can just set up your blanket or your table and sell the book. That's been protected. Uh, but the question came up in the 90s with a number of artists who were selling their own work, actually, uh, importantly, but, um, but were you know, were uh, hounded by the police off the streets insofar as they were told that that form of speech is not protected, artworks are not protected. And it gets more and more complicated from there. So that's another book series that we're starting on art and law, um, which I'm editing the first, uh, first volume in. So I see I've already gone almost over the limit here. Just very quickly, question of community for a magazine is very complicated, of course. You know, you're dispersed. You don't quite know who's reading you. You get feedback, of course, and some magazines encourage more feedback than others. We don't have a letters to the editor that we publish. So the letters that come to us are not published. We do answer them, but we're not, we don't publish them. The one thing we've always been suspicious of is a question of a community that becomes a kind of I-us community, which is a kind of narcissism, I think, that 
you know, is always a danger for magazines where it becomes from a community, it becomes a click of some kind and you're in or you're out or you're sort of feel like you belong to a community in ways that are about exclusion as much as inclusion, I think. So we've always thought about how to produce a disaggregated community around the magazine, some sense of sharedness, but never cohering fully into a community. And perhaps our lack of letters to the editor is part of that. Um, I'm not sure we never had them even before we started to think about such things as how do we stop the magazine from becoming a cult object or a clicky thing or a sense that, you know, I'm this kind of person as opposed to, you know, that kind of person. So that if you're a cabinet writer or a reader, you don't think of yourself as a certain kind of person, you know? So those are some of the things that we have thought about in terms of community. And in terms of critical, I mean, maybe we should leave that for the rest of the conversation. I mean, there's a lot to say, of course, about criticality and critical voices. Just one sentence maybe about that. Um, When we started the magazine, we kind of thought about models of inspiration for ourselves. Um, And, you know, you come with a whole bunch of things, of course, but to solidify them in ways that you can talk about to funders, to readers, you know, um, the kinds of things we thought about were two things. One was a certain kind of bookshelf, the kinds of bookshelves that, in fact, the people that I started the magazine with and I, you know, we had overlapping but distinctly different kinds of bookshelves. Um, but more importantly, the artist studio wall and the kinds of messy, un, you know, un, ungathered, if you like, collections of notes, images, interesting things that artist studio walls often have on them and the kind of excitement generosity, curiosity, and kind of unrecuperatedness of that space, you know, and it's a certain wild space. It's a beautiful space. Um, And we wanted to have some of that energy be part of the magazine in some sense. And I'm not sure if criticality is actually a huge part of that wall. You know, that wall is pre or uncritical in some sense. And, um, that uncriticality, that kind of sense of acceptance, if you like, and enthusiasm was as important to us um, as any sense of criticality, if you like. So, Thank you so much, Sina. I'd love to just respond to some of the things that you've both um, drawn out. Um, and, and the first is in response to your notion of the dispersal or the the disaggregation of readership or audience or community. I mean, to me, for your magazine, which is about 21 years old now, I think you're turning 21, there's that sense to which the very idea of curiosity is bound up in your title, the idea of the cabinet. So you were, my sense is, from my understanding of your magazine, that you were always trying to disperse and be generative and non-hierarchical. I think one of my favourite issues is the one that was on dust. It was probably like about 12 years ago now, Sina, but something that kind of elevated uh, and interrogated, um, something so kind of poetic but also banal. So I feel like the Cabinet has championed this dispersal as a way of thinking and that has positioned you arguably in a good place for what I now see as this proliferation of platforms. I'm thinking and hoping that everyone listening is probably feeling like I am, which is completely 
stunned and overawed by the very proliferation of platforms that both you and Mimi have spoken to in terms of your art writing. I think I would argue that in Australia we are still bound more to perhaps more singular forms with some intersections happening across various spaces in exhibition making or even in the art fair sector, for instance. But largely the, those forms are um, much more kind of homogenous, I think. So, Mimi, it strikes me that in talking about the disregard for hierarchies, you're also speaking to this proliferation of writing. And I'm really interested to hear a little bit more from both of you about what that means and how the work that you're doing is, is not always art, let's say, or is it always art? And what platforms you're most excited about? Sina, it strikes me that in stepping, I'm, I'm curious actually, particularly in my kind of with my um, chair hat on for Art Link, which is a journal that actually interestingly predates both of yours. It was started in 1981. I know the Freeze magazine was started in 1991 and then Cabinet in about 2000. So I'm interested in even this discussion between online and print and whether or not right now, particularly with the issue called end, Sina, are we in an elegiac kind of moment in thinking about the end of print and the beginning, not necessarily the beginning, but the continuity of online and what that means? So I want to just frame up the question because I know I'm hitting you with a wall of words, but the question is, what platforms do you most value now? What is speaking, sorry, it's a big question. What is speaking with potency and power to these many communities? And I love the way you spoke about the potential narcissism in the I and we dialogue. So what are the platforms that are working? And Mimi, I'd love you to start. You, The three examples that you gave were so intertextual in many ways and certainly interdisciplinary I reckon if you could just unpack those a little bit and just talk to perhaps even aspects of those so that our listeners get a sense of how writing might be activated within each of those platforms. Yeah it's a, it's a brilliant question because I think that especially now we're seeing um, a lot more if not self-publishing, like you say, a kind of dispersal of different publishing initiatives. So uh, the piece that Roisin was looking at in the context of the um, uh, what's happening in the Arab world, I guess all of these platforms were broadly responding to the, the power dynamics of various realms. So um, I know that um, Internet of Things and Other World is possible. They were specifically responding to the power dynamics in the virtual realm and how and how we can kind of overcome them. And then for Lifter Volumes, I think they're in, in, engaged in kind of setting right the flattened perspective of Palestinian identity that, that so often happens. And Habibi Collective, I guess, was also kind of um, wanting to platform women's filmmaking um, from a region that isn't really, really very widely known about in the West, at least at least the, the kind of cultural landscape. So I guess each of those platforms are addressing kind of lack in the dominant discourse. And I've been noticing, I mean, I'm constantly coming across new new platforms. I've, I wish I had a list of names, but um, online um, that are similarly, you know, led by a specific community, kind of saying 
the the kind of the whole Western narrative that um, that has been um, that's been dominant for so long. This is only part of the picture, and I think we're we're still we're still kind of putting together these pieces of the puzzle that's never ending, essentially. But where Freeze's position, I think, Sina, you know, what you said was was really interesting about like where this us and we and 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 where do we how how do we open up the the magazine to other readers while also keeping the identity of the magazine? I don't know if you find this, but as an editor, I'm always having to remind myself of this abstract freeze reader and I don't really know I don't think I could describe them very accurately but I do I feel like I do have a sense of what they're expecting from the content and I guess you're mediating between the the writer's perspective and kind of what this imagined reader is expecting but that that can oftentimes get confusing especially especially as we move online and content lives differently like it's not just you know enclosed in a print magazine it's it's shared it's it lives in all these different forms so yeah kind of rambled but I hope that answered your question Lisa indeed and I just love what you've said and it begs the question of where does content best live so Sina over to you to talk about these dispersed platforms but I'm really curious to hear about the shift online and your anticipation around that I would even love you I mean I can see the books behind you I can't see if you've got one of the cabinet mags but I think it would be great even if you wanted to do a show and tell because there's been some kind of, you know, there's an act of iconoclasm in going online in the sense that the Cabinet Journal has also been a very beautiful thing, I would argue. So can, do you want to just talk talk about the platforms but just give sure. us a little bit about the online story? Yes, very quickly. And then the more important thing in some sense maybe is what Mimi brings up, which is the question of, you know, how you commission, how you edit, how you think about what you're doing when you don't have you know it's not like a talk where like this where I, even though I've never met any of you uh you know there you are and I can sort of have a slight sense of things so you know that's a very complicated question that you just put up there in terms of the different platforms the way we think about them is a question of temporality so we've had for a long time a book series called the 24-hour books and the, in the 24-hour books we lock up a writer or an artist or sometimes a collective two people is the maximum we've done in our brooklyn space typically not always in the brooklyn space in some space and in 24 hours not being able to leave the place it sounds so sadistic it's not as sadistic as it sounds we're also locked up in there uh, an editor a designer sometimes a research assistant if necessary and in 24 hours, we make a book with the person from beginning to end. Like they come in with nothing. By the time they're done, um, the book is at the printer. So laid out at the printer in 24 hours. And that came out of an event that we did called Iron Artists, which was a kind of a strange parody of a TV show that became quite famous once the American remake was done. But the original one was a Japanese TV series called Iron Artists. I don't know if it's famous in Australia where um, three chefs would be given a particular ingredient and they had to make everything with that particular ingredient. And the Japanese version was incredibly uh, seductive and absurd. And Iron Artist was an attempt to kind of do this. This was a thing we did at PS1 many years ago. And, you know, artists had 45 minutes, I think it was, to respond to some absurd theme that we would announce, like man's inhumanity to man or the inability to 
understand of for some like you know old school absurd theme and they had to make an artwork that responded to it and we had real-time critics writing uh their analyses of these artworks and some of these essays i mean some of the artworks were amazing but some of the essays were really extraordinary and so the book series came out of that that's one end of temporality squash as much as you can and have almost like an exam-like sense of can you do this in an hour can you respond to this question about hamlet in one hour and it's interesting what happens. I mean, it feels like a stunt in some sense, and I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but there have been some really interesting results, I think. At the other end of the scale, you have books and exhibitions, which take years sometimes to commission, edit. You know, and Somewhere in the middle is the magazine, which takes about six to nine months from when we get a piece to when we edit it. Editing is very laborious with us. I hope that doesn't deter any writers who are here. Uh, and then we have Kiosk, which is the online platform where... We typically try to get shorter pieces that perhaps are a bit more topical, you know, in the sense that they should be edited in a week and go up a week after that. So these are different temporalities rather than anything else. You know, that's what's important to us. You know, what did these different temporalities do to what we can commission, how we work, how the writer or the artist works and, you know, and how it's received. Like, you know, when you read a book, this 24 hour book, We've had, I think, some really interesting books, but you're not going to read it the same way as you would read a book that was produced over three years, you know? Your reception of that book is going to be vastly different, right? And then the question that Mimi brought up, I think we should come back to that and perhaps, you know, that's, that's a huge question of how do you imagine, you know, the reader, right? Um, I mean, I've always thought that any good cultural project writes its readers into existence in the sense that, you know, you can't think when Fries came along, it didn't just go, ah, there's the art forum reader and the blah, blah, blah reader. And we're going to see if we can nab those readers. You know, that's not what a great magazine does. It produces a new kind of sensibility, a new kind of reader by writing them into existence, right? When you edit, when you commission, when you edit, you know, what do you imagine that reader to be? It's very difficult because um, they are all over the world. They are all over the map for us um, in terms of what they've studied, what they expect, you know. We, so our real relationship to it is how we edit. How do we edit so that anybody from anywhere with any field, not even with a BA, hopefully, can understand most of the things that we do. Not everything, but most of the things that we do. So that's our main struggle in terms of, like, can we make this piece um, without simplifying it as accessible as possible and bring out what it is that is important here? You know, that's only half an answer because it's such a huge topic. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Sina. I love the idea that the, the idea of temporality engenders the forms or the different platforms rather than mm -hmm. perhaps the way that I was coming at it initially, which was tell us about the platforms. It's like, no, no, if you take temporality as you gauge, then you can kind of discover all of these different platforms and all seem to me to be desperately seeking uh, an urgent engagement with your reader in different ways. And Mimi, I'd love you to talk about that kind of spectre of the reader and what, how Freeze, perhaps, or perhaps you more personally, come at that idea. I mean, you've already said that you try and imagine and it's kind of inchoate kind of form, but where do you go then? In the editing that you're doing, where do you go? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really big question. Um, it was really interesting to hear Sina about what your priorities at Cabinet are, because I think they, they're pretty good ones, like, 
I think it's important not to think too much about the reader when you're commissioning and just kind of, I think, I think if you overthink it, then you can run the risk of just kind of presenting readers with what you think they want. Mm. Um, whereas, yeah, when I commission something, I'm, I'm kind of asking, can this work be furthered in any way? Can this writer bring something new to this? Is this, is there already an interest there that's gonna, that's kind of, basically, I suppose, it's a, it's a wonderful job having, you know, having a bit of budget to commission people because it's like, you can, you can offer this editorial support for people to explore the things they want to explore. And so when I'm commissioning it, always kind of try and keep it open. I mean, obviously I'm restricted to reviews um, most of the time. Um, but then it's always, uh, what I find difficult is the, is the copy editing process um, because while you're wanting to, you know, establish consistency across the magazine um, and also Freeze's art writing is traditionally very descriptive. Um, I think sometimes we, I think sometimes we do assume knowledge from the reader. Um, like I remember noticing the adjective Cajun to describe something that's like John Cage. Um, but I think most of the time we do try and kind of keep keep the writing as accessible as possible. Um, but that said, I always I'm all, I'm always kind of running into this issue where I don't want to change the writer's voice, but I also um, you know it's it's being copy edited in this very scrupulous way. Um, so it's always it's always a very careful balancing act um, with things like that. But really it's just kind of yeah I want to make the text as as clear and accessible as possible. Thank you. I'm going to throw a quick question at both of you, and that is top tip for accessible writing. If there was one bit of advice that you were going to give tonight, I love the way you described, Sina, that Cabinet was looking less at the bookshelf and more at the artist's studio wall. I think if there's homework for everyone listening, that might be to look at the studio and to find inspiration in that studio wall. If from that moment we step into the art of writing, what's your top tip for accessibility? I think that studio wall um, suggestion is a brilliant one. I also, I have a suspicion that lots of art writers start their writing process just with the press release and then they work from there. Um, but I would say, and this is a piece of advice that I do not take myself, but really try and avoid mixed metaphors because I think there's this temptation. I don't really know how we've got into this culture, but like with art writing especially, there's this temptation to, you know, the work itself is already complex, but to complicate it more through an elaborate description that's combining all these images that's very hard to keep track of. So yeah, that is my, that's my tip. Excellent. Thank you, Mimi. Sina, what about for you? I think that the best pieces are, you know, written almost as if they're spoken, you know, and I mean, I wish we could eliminate the press release because the language of press releases and the kind of malaise of that kind of voice, you know, the way it dominates a certain kind of, you know, people think they should write in that mode. Um, it's terrible. In, uh, as I said before, I'm not an anti-Freudian, I'm a Freudian. In Jacques Lacan's teaching, there is a beautiful thing. I was going to become a Lacanian psychoanalyst at some point, so I was in Paris training to become a Lacanian. They have this beautiful thing called the pass, and the pass means that when you're ready to take your final exam to become a Lacanian psychoanalyst, um, you have hopefully learned a lot. You've been in analysis, you've gone to all the lectures, you've done all the reading, and in order to convince the body that's going to examine you that you need to be allowed 
into the community uh, as a practitioner, you don't go. You send a friend who has nothing to do with psychoanalysis, who you tell your knowledge to, and that person goes instead and stands in front of that body and tries to tell them what you know. And this passing of knowledge is meant to be a mechanism to show that you've truly understood something. The way a teacher, you know, when their student afterwards can write about something or tell others about something and make them understand you've truly transmitted the knowledge, the secondary kind of mode. So in some sense, I think, you know, a piece that's fantastic can pass that kind of test, you know, where somebody else reading it can actually truly get it over to another person at that point. And that is the task of writing, I think, you know, small part editing, but really writing, you know, that's what you're aspiring to. Not that we succeed, but, you know, that's what you're aspiring to, to be about transmission, right? Yeah. Not just from us to, you know, from the writer to the reader, but from the reader to another reader. That's the real test, I think, you know, of good writing. Beautiful. Love that. I think we, we should all adopt that, that the, the viva becomes spoken through another. I think it's a wonderful concept. We're going to do one more question where you guys get to ask each other a question because I'm super curious about that. Sina, given that you had the last word, how about you get to ask Mimi in the first instance? I love yeah. the fact that you haven't met before tonight. So thank you, Guildhouse, for bringing these two extraordinary individuals together for a start. Yeah, I guess one question I would have is um, going back to the question of how one commissions and edits. You know, we, we run very different kinds of magazines, obviously. And having been at the magazine from the very beginning feels very different, of course, because you don't really know what you're doing. You're sort of creating the structures as you go along. Whereas, you know, you've joined a large structure that existed before. So I don't know if you can answer this question, but I feel like the reader in your mind must be very different than it is in my mind, leaving aside the difference between our readers, just because the readers were there before you joined, you know, whereas there were no readers when I joined if the magazine, if you like, you had zero subscribers, we had no readers, there was nothing. So, so that, in some sense, that gives me a certain kind of freedom, I think, that you don't quite have because, you know, there was already a thing there and it's kind of powerful, right? But on the other hand, you guys have resources and a, a relationship to what you can do that we can't do, you know? So there's a kind of a certain things that are afforded to you and certain things that are not afforded to you, I think, at a magazine like Freeze. So I, I don't know, I was just wondering about that relationship. I mean, we're tiny, we're a nonprofit. We have a full-time staff of one, you're looking at it, and then three part-time people, and Freeze has, I don't know, yes, <laughs> something very different, you know, so. Yeah. Question of size, I guess, and the pre-existing conditions, you know, it's important, I think. It's interesting hearing you speak about those uh, 24-hour books. That sounds amazing. It did remind me of um, a little bit of a story that I heard from the managing editor when I started about when the fair was just starting, Freeze Art Fair was just starting, and um, writers would race each other to see who could write their entries the quickest. But I guess, yeah, Freeze is a funny one because on the one hand, it is it is a very defined magazine. It's been around, it's approaching its 30th birthday. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's kind of constantly changing and it's even hard for me to keep up uh, sometimes with the, the kind of rate at which um, it's developing. Um, but one thing that I was really kind of blessed about was uh, when I started, uh, I was working with Jennifer Higgy, who had started pretty, you know, pretty much from the start. 
she she really kind of encapsulated the sort of original freeze culture, I suppose. And a couple of other people working there um, had also been around for you know ten years or more. Yeah, I see what you mean. What you mean about it being kind of a blessing and a curse coming in later on, because I think the reason I'm always grappling with who the freeze reader is is because I don't really know. I mean, I've been there four years, which is quite a long time, but yeah, I'm not entirely clear about it. I know the people who who tell me they've read it. I know the writers that I'm working with. I know the galleries that I'm kind of interested in. But yeah, other than that, it can be it can be quite challenging. So I think actually, like, I guess a question back to you. I wanted to ask you a different question, but maybe flowing on from this is how, how how much do you kind of look at your history as a magazine? Like, do you kind of go, do you ever like just browse through issues from the archive and think, oh, we did this? Or do you ever think about resurfacing something again? Because obviously, you know, each of your magazines, I haven't haven't read loads of them, but I was also really struck by how how distinctive your editorial is in the sense that it's bringing together history, but also history, culture, psychoanalysis but also details that are very prevalent that haven't really been very widely covered and I wanted to ask you actually how you approach these themes because they never feel like you've imposed them they're they're, they're there already they're in the material so I'm, I'm just interested in like learning about how how you get to that theme yeah the question of history is uh interesting and important we did a book uh a while ago do I have a copy here no, sorry, I don't have anything. Of, <laughs> I don't have anything here. I think I have a copy of the magazine over there. But um, we did a book which was a kind of encyclopedia, uh, which was some articles from the first ten years. It wasn't the best articles, actually. It was sort of what could fit into an encyclopedia format. I hated the idea of doing that book. I was forced by my colleagues to think about a celebration of our first ten years. Um, our twenty years came and went this year, and I didn't. You know, I, I was happy that nobody else like tried to like goad us into celebrating that. So I never look at stuff from the past um, unless something comes up. A writer writes, somebody, a reader writes and goes, you made a mistake, but this was wrong. Or, you know, I hate this. So, you know, so usually it's like non-celebratory emails critiquing something or pointing out an error that makes me go back to a text. So I don't know, I'm very unnostalgic in that sense. Um, and I'm looking forward to the end of the print issue, actually, and mostly, you know, so I don't have that kind of um, nostalgia around stuff in that sense. In terms of like, well, I guess the question, second question is, how do we go about doing what we do? It's sort of, you know, obviously there are things that we do on purpose, but I also want to emphasize here that there are also some things you do that are quite accidental. You set up a certain kind of structure and if you make those structures not loose, but, you know, a certain kind of looseness in them, then it turns out that things fall through them into your lap in particular ways that you like, you know. So part of what has allowed us to have a lot of different kinds of voices is that we have an editorial group uh, unpaid that is huge and they don't have any fixed jobs. I mean, there are some editors who are paid, but, you know, the unpaid large, you'll see a lot of editors mentioned there. Sometimes I get an email from them once a year saying, I saw this amazing talk, you know, and some people are more active, of course. So, you know, we have a very different kinds of people and they don't have any duties as such other than to be interesting and listen to interesting things and tell us about them. And, you know, a lot of things kind of shape up, not randomly is the wrong word, but, you know, they seem random in the sense that because the structures are loose, you know, and, um, we have faith in material. We have faith in the world. We have faith that, you know, 
when you learn about something, not that it's interesting in itself, which it is, you know, um, I mean, I think there's a beautiful essay by my colleague, Justin Smith. I don't know if you know this philosopher, Justin Smith, recently published on the humanities. And he talks about curiosity in that essay. It's an extraordinary, you should read the original version, not the one published in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which was edited, but the original version, which he published on Substack. I think it's an amazing defense of the humanities, but it's about the humanities. Why do you read the Upanishads? Not because they're interesting in themselves, which they are, perhaps. But if you're not interested in them, I can never convince you that they're interesting, right? You read them because if you look at anything long enough, including a snail, you will find something in there that decenters yourself and you get, according to him, an I-thou relationship, like Martin Buber's ethical relationship, not just to another human being, but to a snail and to the natural world, and perhaps even a stone. And he, he brings the humanities up as a tool for having this relationship. And I think that that can be a guiding principle for what you commission and what you put in a magazine. I hope some of it made sense. That's sort of a guiding principle in some sense. I never expressed it like that until Justin Smith came along three weeks ago, a month ago, whatever. This I-thou relationship is important to us. So we don't care what we publish as long as you can have some sense of that I-thou relationship to the topic of hand, whether it's a sea slug or an artwork or the plight of a particular human being or a stone, you know, so it doesn't have to be a living thing. It can be, but, you know, that relationship is what's important, I think. Justin's essay is so brilliant. I, you know, I'm just blown away by how he frames all these questions, I think, so. I encourage everybody to read it. We certainly will. Thank you. That was illuminating, inspiring, and just wonderful to uh, listen and watch you interacting. And I'm keen now to broaden the sphere of interaction. So I think I want to throw to you, Emma, because I think we've got some questions coming in. We certainly do. Thanks so much, Lisa. Um, I've got a couple of questions for myself, but I'm going to throw to other people's questions first. First is, hi, Sina, long-time reader, first-time caller. I was hoping we might go back to Lisa's point about the objecthood of the magazine itself. How do you imagine or what are the ways that you will translate the experience of Cabinet as it transforms and is translated to an online platform? Yeah, maybe I will grab an issue of the magazine now. I think that it'll be hard, partly because one of the things we like, I don't know if people know that amazing Agnes Varda film, The Gleaners and I, which I love, and it's all about, you know, what gleaning is after the main people have come and harvested things. And from the very beginning, we had this idea of what can we do that's a little unusual, that's almost free. And so this, here's the copy of the current issue, which has a section on dreams, as I said. You know, when you print a magazine, I, I, I love the mechanics of printing. You know, I've gone on press a few times, even though I had no business being there just to learn. So when you print you know, you print this like this, this cover, both sides, of course. And then the sheet of paper in, Brus in Belgium that we print on, uh, our Belgian printer, two of these fit on, whoops, sorry, there. Two of these fit on that piece of paper. And then there's lots of stuff they're going to throw out. But you can print on that extra stuff for free. So we were always printing, um, we were always printing a bookmark that was special to the issue. Uh, for free on the same stock. We were always printing um, uh, a postcard, just like that. Um, and then other things too, sometimes multiple postcards, sometimes other things that would go in. Um, so we love the kind of idea of like for free piggyback 
piggybacking off of printing technology and including that in there in lots of ways. And it, it is, you know, nicely printed and all that. None of that will translate, of course, you know. So we're, as I said, I'm not nostalgic about it. Everything comes to an end. And perhaps it should have ended sooner, the print issue. I'm not sure. But I'm not nostalgic about those things. I am looking forward to having other things we can't do in here that we can do online, you know. We have an amazing uh, article in here, for example, about a guy called Hans-Peter Loon, who's a guy who after World War II will revolutionize IBM and information processing at IBM. He's one of the major architects of search and how to compile keywords for IBM. And it'll be very important in that history. When he first came to the US from Germany, he created a cocktail guide. And this cocktail guide is extraordinary because he uses the exact same ideas that are gonna revolutionize IBM to make this cocktail guide. And this cocktail guide starts with the question, not here's a gin and tonic, what do I need? You just put into the cocktail guide and it's incredible how he does it. It's a physical device. All the ingredients you have, and then you can have all the cocktails you can make. So you start with what you have, and then you see what you can get, right? It's extraordinary. Like, And how he does it is amazing. And we decided to do a digital version of this. So now we have online a digital version of this cocktail maker, and we're commissioning different people to have different kind of decks, as we're calling them. So, you know, we could have done that in print, but, you know, the, the issues, the, the articles online for free, uh, some articles are free online, and then there's the cocktail maker, which as people are stuck at home with some random ingredients is coming very handy, for example. So there are certain things that you could have done, but you do more of when you're digitally bound. We all need a cocktail soon, so. Thank you so much, Cena. And that question came from Belinda Howden, so thank you so much, Belinda. Um, I've also got a question from James Gear to anyone on the panel, but it was it's really reflecting on the conversation we had just about nostalgia and history, I think. And, and James' question as an art practicing artist is, how much as an artist should we look to our history, if ever? It's quite a you know a philosophical question, but I think it's sort of quite pertinent in some of the ways that we've spoken about um, how Freeze and Cabinet think about the editorial approaches. Yeah, I mean, I can begin by trying to answer that if it can be answered. What I've been really noticing um, in the last year, and I don't know whether this has to do with the events of the past year or just my general development, is the fact that history is constantly is constantly morphing. Like our understanding of it is constantly changing and twisting, and it's full of erasures and it's full of misinterpretations, and it's also just very. I mean, I guess what I was kind of wanting to outline with the piece on the documentary from the nineteen eighties was this uh, dialogue between past and present. That said, you know that if you're if you're a practicing artist and you're you're not interested in engaging with past then I don't think it's a requirement yeah I think sometimes there can be pressure among artists to kind of take a very broad outlook when actually maybe you just want to be doing your thing in your own kind of niche and that's also fine maybe seen has got some thoughts well um as I said we're not interested in the history of the magazine but the magazine has always been very very interested in the histories of things in particular histories that kind of, we have a, such a limited sense of our, the history of particular practices, objects, modes of being, modes of thinking at this point. And so our commitment, the book side, as opposed to the artist side, uh, you know, the bookshelf side of our inspiration is to look at academic models of that long, long history that made something possible and bring some of that stuff out in the magazine. We have a, we have an article online at the moment about the long history of Bitcoin, which really, I mean, you can go back 
thousands of years around what the model of Bitcoin is, you know, a certain kind of knowledge that this money is now yours, not mine. And it's just knowledge in some sense, right? It's a theory of knowledge in some sense, money. And it's been around for a long time. So, you know, we are interested in those kinds of histories and have been from day one, but not in our own history. <laughs> Jane's question, what strikes me in the question is the, is the word our, and I guess I, I would throw the question back to Jane, what does our mean in Australia? We haven't been very good at thinking about history, ours, yours, mine. And so I think, I mean, Mimi's point about artists not needing to go there, I think there's a localised kind of nuance and a kind of ghosting of our history right here, right now, that is inescapable. So I think, yeah, it kind of depends a lot on where you're coming from in response to the answer to that question. And Cynthia's, I've just seen Cynthia's response, can we work outside of history? I, I would argue that we can't, but that's a lovely question to throw back to Sina and then to Mimi. Can we work outside of history? I would say no. You can think you can, but the way I, Walter Benjamin talks about how, you know, the way you lift the coffee cup and, you know, where your fingers are historically determined and, you know, that can be paralyzing, but I think there's some truth to that, you know, to, to every single object around me, to every single thing that I think having a history of some kind and what makes it possible. So it can be impossible sometimes to do something if you think about those histories all the time, of course, but I don't think you can sidestep it personally. Tito, I'm going to stay with you for a minute because Damien has come in with a question that brings together these conversations and uh, it's can we create an I-thou relationship with our institutionally constituted history? I think so. Mm. I think so. I mean, I think that... I think we have you know, to. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's, let me go back to something very minor, which is like a particular slug. We had an article on a particular slug, which was a kind of a challenge because somebody who I know, who's an art, art historian, had said, Kavanaugh would publish anything, even about a sea slug. And she meant that as a derogatory term, derogatory comment. So we commissioned this amazing piece, I think, on, the, on this particular slug that has been used by neurologists to figure out how our brains work. They used the slug because it was quite a simple creature with not a whole lot of nerves in its brain. And the question is, you know, this historian of science who wrote this piece for us did a beautiful job thinking about what kind of theory of mind do we end up with when we do that, you know, when we think of this slug in relation to ourselves in this way. What made it suitable? for science and what does that suitability do to us as we think about ourselves in this slug? It's a beautiful piece, I think. But that's like a science history moment of looking at the slug and understanding it in this way and what it's done to us, right? But there's also, there's also a book called The Theology of Snails from the 19th century, which is all about looking at, a, at slugs and snails and thinking about a morality that you can see if you pay enough attention to this animal, right? And I don't think that kind of attention, if you think is true, perhaps, I think I do now think it's true that you can pay attention. Like we pay, some people here might have cats or dogs or other pets. When you pay enough attention to those animals, something happens in you that is not just, I have a cat, right? My cat just died. My cat of 15 years just died. So, you know, um, that cat wasn't just like an animal that was running around. That was a, you know, and it was because of the attention that that cat gave me and I gave the cat, right? I don't, I think the same thing can happen by attention, which is really love. What is love but attention? Um, 
to various things. And then you can see the theology written, if you're a theological person, in snails. Or you can see a certain kind of way of behaving toward the world by paying attention to those to a snail, you know, or a rock. Or again, you know, really anything, clouds, whatever it is. But attention as love means that you can, you know, have that relationship, I think, outside of institutional history. That was beautiful. Really inspiring. Thank you. Mimi, final word to you in response to that question about working outside of history. I'd love to hear your sense of that. Yeah, well, I don't think I can match Sina's very inspiring response, which I'm honestly going to think about when I next do a piece of writing. In terms of um, what the question was asking, which is an institutionally constituted history, I think it would be great if we could establish that relationship. I only wish there was more transparency around it. I suppose, because I guess when you're looking at something, um, I mean, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the context of the UK, I think the, the, you know, the kind of everyday institutional racism, um, the everyday kind of, um, yeah, institutionally classified reality isn't isn't the full story and it would be great if we could really take a kind of penetrating look at that and 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 really try and reckon with it taking it back to to critical writing another another facet that really interests me and excites me is um is when a writer will kind of be like a scalpel and actually look at those structures that people aren't really seeing normally or look at that hidden art organization behind something and actually a great example of that is Andy Butler, who I understand was on the last panel, I think. But yeah, Andy's uh, review of the NGV Triennial did a great job of, of this. And um, yeah, anything that can kind of, that can, that can, sh- that can um, cleave, cleave open that relationship is, is really fantastic. That's what writing should be doing. Thank you so much. I was sort of thinking and, and ruminating on what Sina said about writing our audiences into existence. And I think that's a really poetic way of talking about if we create something meaningful and powerful, it's going to attract interest and support. In in some respects, powerful might not be the right word, but through the act of creation, we bring people around something. I wondered if you would both briefly comment on what your own process of discovery is. You know, how do you navigate and discover things for yourself? You're imagining yourself as this audience coming into existence. How does that work for you? Are you you asking about in the context of um, editing? specifically or kind of more broadly? I'm actually asking more broadly. I probably should ask you in your role as editor, but I'm actually interested in your role as a human being, thinking about then how that might parallel with the kinds of audiences that um, that come to your magazines and publications and platforms. I mean, yeah, I think I probably go to artists first, more than writers recently. Um, I've actually, I never thought I'd say this because I'm not, I'm not very online most of the time, but this year, obviously, I have been. I've been really enjoying um, joining uh, conversations like this, um, uh, walkthroughs of exhibitions on Instagram, um, and and just kind of, yeah, taking some sustained time to really, like, sit with what artists are saying and doing and, and taking some time to let that sink in. Um, so yeah, I joined this Zoom conversation that actually it wasn't a Zoom conversation, it was a YouTube conversation, um, that Sorab Bura did um back in May. Um, it was by Cuckoo Conversations and it was looking at 
this idea that, that there's no such thing as Indian photography, that, that the national uh, distinctions in the region are, are a lot more porous historically and culturally than, um, than we often give them credit for. And that's kind of progressed into an exhibition that, that he's just curated in Dubai. Um, and I guess that kind of thinking beyond that kind of thinking about transnational conversations has really, has, has really kind of continued for me, not just in the context of, of what Sorab's doing, but also other artists in other regions. Um, so yeah, I, I, I actually like kind of taking artists' works to kind of as a starting point for my thinking process sometimes. Thank you so much. Dina, did you have anything you wanted to say to that question? No, I mean, the one thing I am nostalgic for is the very first moment when you start a magazine where you have zero readers. That is like an extraordinary moment when, you know, you have no pressure, no readers, nothing to lose, you know, it's like total freedom. And so that is, that is an extraordinary moment. Um, I have to say the one thing that I hope doesn't go away after this pandemic hopefully ends is the kind of sense of openness and generosity that a lot of academic and non-academic institutions have shown now with having, last, last night, my wife and I watched two incredible talks, lectures, you know, online. We would never have made it to Cambridge, Massachusetts for one of them. The other one was in Berlin, kind of, sort of, you know, that's where I am now, by the way. But, you know, these, these have been incredible, incredible. And the whole model of education has changed a little bit. I took a course with a friend of mine who teaches Renaissance art history at NYU last semester. And I, you know, Alex, can I sit in on your class? He's like, sure. So, you know, I've wanted to learn from Ale Alexander Nagel for a long, long time about, you know, outside of his, uh, yeah, outside of his, you know, my conversations with him. But, you know, there I was sitting in as an undergraduate in his course, and I learned so much. And I'm not sure if I could have done that before this. So I hope some of these new avenues continue you know that is so great and in terms of gleaning information my goodness yeah so many things to say from last night's two talks that we could you know go into the magazine in some sense or, thank yeah. you so much i really appreciate that um, exploration and just that you know expansion on how you approach and explore um one last comment elaine henry has just written in to say that she's the former editor and publisher of ceramics art and perception and is now a writer and ceramics artist and she has more of a comment um, than a question, but just wanted to state this, and I think it's wonderful to be able to repeat this on her behalf, that she really values your comments, Sina, about accessible writing and wonders what it would look like if our readers approached the writing as if they had to explain the content. It's nearly 3 a.m. Mountain Time US for her, and it's been worth getting up at that hour. So I just wanted to note that from Elaine and say thank you. Um, and I do think it's a lovely moment to, to, to wrap up now and say thank you so much to everyone. I think this has been an absolutely delightful and insightful conversation. I've written so many names and, and things I want to go and look up now after our conversation. So thank you to Lisa, to Mimi and to Sina for your time and for you know, sharing your, your thoughts and comments with us and to connect with the artists of South Australia. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.